Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Who's Talking. He has taken his love of the stars to a mass audience, injecting astrophysics with a dose of pop culture. And now he's applying the lessons he learned observing outer space to help bridge the differences that divide us here on Earth these days. You've had a few clunkers in recent years. You think? That's not perception, that's reality. I'm feeling stronger than ever now in my life. How would you rate yourself as a chef? Why, I'm not doing that with you, Christopher Wilder. Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome. I'm delighted to get the chance to talk to you. And I am, we're, it, this is a happy coincidence. I was going to wear that exact tie. No, you were not. You were lying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise you, I do not have a tie like that in my closet. I, about, I got about 110 ties. Each one is sort of uniquely uh, capturing some aspect of the universe as imagined or rather as felt through the eyes of an artist. And that's, let me guess, Vincent Van Gogh. Vincent Van Gogh, you got it. Uh, The Starry Night. I want to start with your latest book, Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. When you look at our world here on Earth from a cosmic perspective, what do you see? (laughs) That's your book. I want to weep. (laughs) You want to weep, okay. Yes, that's, I want to weep. I see, especially today, the level of, there's no other term for it, tribalism, where there's a we and a they, and if you're not with me, you're against me, and if it's not up, it's down. If it's not left, it's right. If it's not black, it's, if it's not boy or girl. This binarity that feeds this deep level of tribalism, uh, I think a lot of it is because we don't know how to think about what is objectively true in the world. Because if we did, there'd be more that we could agree on before we start arguing about our differences of opinion. Well, in your book, you use the device of saying, what would an alien say? <laughs> yes. If they thr- came here to Earth from <laughs> outer space yeah. and they saw our wars, our politics, as you say, our inability to distinguish fact from opinion. So what do you think said alien would say? So the alien comes upon Earth, beautiful blue marble orbiting the sun, and there's ocean and land, and clouds. And then they learn that there's a species that has spread itself across all of the land. They say, oh, that's a very productive, very successful species. And then they come down and they say, oh, wait a minute, that same species has drawn lines on this otherwise contiguous set of land masses, 
And these lines, you can't cross them unless you have special papers. Not only that, they've divided themselves by who they worship, what their skin color is, what their, uh, how they dress, where resources are and where they're not, on a level where they will even commit violence, even all-out war. And so the aliens say, really? Isn't it just one species? Isn't it just one planet? Is, isn't the land all contiguous? What the hell is wrong with you? They'd run back to their home planet and declare there is no sign of intelligent life on Earth. <laughs> but I'm certain that's what the aliens would think. But we do have real differences. We do have serious differences between nations, between political parties. Are we just supposed to say from a cosmic perspective they don't matter? No, no. In fact, the differences enrich the plurality of a nation, especially of a free nation. So no, I don't want to get rid of differences. I want, I want to get rid of differences that at their fundamental level are not different. You think they're different because you've dug your heels into some opinion that is malformed based on what you think is true. That's different from us agreeing what is objectively true and then sitting down and say, oh, what do you think about this? And then you share your point of view with me, as do I. And you say, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Oh, let's, is there a way we can resolve this? But when you fight over it, the only reason why you would fight over a difference of an opinion is because you are certain your opinion is correct and that of who you're arguing with is wrong. You have carved out a unique place for yourself in our intellectual life these days. Uh, and I think, I don't know if you're going to object to this, I would describe it as the pop scientist. Here you are on one of your many shows, Cosmos, Possible Worlds. Take a look. Every month represents about a billion years. Every day represents nearly 40 million years. That first day of the cosmic year began with the Big Bang. Almost 14 billion years ago. Nothing really happened in our neck of the universe until about 3 billion years later. March 15th of the cosmic year. When our Milky Way galaxy began to form. How did you decide on this role? And do you get pushback from, and I say this advisedly, serious scientists? That pop scientist role had already been carved by Carl Sagan. And whatever sort of blood on the tracks that left, I remembered hearing about this, that he was chastised by some of his colleagues for appearing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And this is a show that had huge reach into the taxpaying public <laughs> And why well, I say taxpaying, because NASA and the National Science Foundation and other funding agencies get their money from the electorate, and that's what pays for the research that we do. So at some level, we have an, a duty, if not an obligation, to bring some of that back to the public. So they objected that it was so pop. But then you realize, at the end, uh, it's a <laughs> our fellow scientists that realize, oh, they're applying for some grant or something, and that they're their representative in Congress says, wait a minute, is that about you going to research what I just saw Carl Sagan talk about? Yeah, that's a good idea. And so, yes, I do this. Um, keep in mind, my title 
is director of New York City's Hayden Planetarium, which has a built-in fact that you're going to be taking this, some, if not all of this, to the public. And yeah, when I'm writing a book, I'm not doing the research paper, right? So there's a trade-off often in that. But no, I still have strong taproots into the, into the research community. We have another clip here of you showing Galileo bringing cosmic truths to all of us about our real place in the universe. What is that shimmering, unsteady thing we're looking at? That's what Galileo Galilei asked himself in 1610, when he became the first human to see Saturn as more than just a point of light. So this is the telescope that made the modern scientific revolution possible. You know, you really started something. <laughs> it's did. good stuff. <laughs> you say you try to, to balance science with showbiz without dumbing it down. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say showbiz, it's true that, but um, I, I would say I spend some larger than I really want fraction of my life connecting myself to pop culture, learning who everybody is, what they're saying from one day to the next, so that when you, the listener, the student, the person attending a public talk, a listener to my podcast, when you walk in the room, you have a scaffold. You come in with a pop culture scaffold. And I know that because I've worked at it. I know what's, what your scaffold looks like. I know what its shape is. And I say, how can I clad this bit of science onto that scaffold? And in that way, by the time it reaches you, you already care about it because I attached it to something that mattered to you. And so anytime you can invoke a pop culture force on the educational plan, uh, people are way more uh, prone to embrace it and to come back for more. Now we're going to get to the part of our conversation that I've been dreading uh, because science was by far my worst subject in school. Here we go. What's the difference? And remember, treat me like a, the dim student I am. What's the difference between astronomy and astrophysics? So that's a good question. So until the late 1800s, uh, the study of the universe did not amount to much more than where is the object in the sky? Uh, what does it look like through a telescope? Uh, what color is it? Uh, and you might be able to find out how fast it's moving. And that's astronomy. Yeah, basically, it's astronomy. And Let's look at the stars. Let's look at them and write down some bits of okay. information. about. Come later, latter part of the 19th century into the 20th century, we brought the power of spectroscopy to the universe. Is the difference basically astronomy is I'm looking up there and I'm seeing what's there and astrophysics is giving me an indication of how it came to be? How it came to be and applying well-tested laws of physics here on Earth across the universe, not only in space, but also through the depths of time. So astrophysics is the modern word for what, what all modern day astronomers do. We still hold the term astronomy for if you have a backyard telescope, you're an astronomer, an amateur astronomer. Uh, if you're good at it, you're an amateur. There aren't many other usages of amateur that exalts it. Um, you wouldn't go to an amateur neurosurgeon, I don't think. <laughs> but, but if you had access to an amateur astronomer, they'll take it to the eclipses. They know what's going on tonight, 
what the moon is doing. They're an expert in the night sky. All right, let's geek out a little bit. And I, again, all simply and briefly, uh, much of your early research was on something called the galactic bulge. Yeah. What's that? So it turns out our galaxy, we're embedded in the Milky Way. We don't think about it that way. When you go out at night, you see this band of light across the sky. And when you do this, you say to yourself, that's the Milky Way. But we're in the Milky Way. Not much different from a blueberry embedded in a pancake. It's flat, but the blueberry pokes out above and below. So when you see outside, away from that band of light, you can see the rest of the universe. But within the band of light, it is crowded with stars in our own galaxy. The center of the galaxy, it turns out, is deeply obscured from our view because of thick gas clouds. And you have to sort of punch through with special telescopes. And it turns out there's a system of stars that creates a bulge in the center of that pancake. And that's, that was the object of my interest for my PhD thesis. Some of this I can't understand, uh, like the fact that you were involved in the effort to demote Pluto. You knew where I was headed. <laughs> to demote Pluto is our ninth planet. Uh, you even appeared on my favorite science show, Big Bang Theory. Oh. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> I'm quite familiar with Dr. Tyson. He's responsible for the demotion of Pluto from planetary status. I liked Pluto. <laughs> Ergo, I do not like you. But I actually didn't demote Pluto. That was a vote of the International Astronomical Union. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> Is it true? <laughs> For the evidence, I can't act, really, but... No, I but, thought you did very well <laughs> I did okay there. Yeah. Is it true that you got hate mail for dissing Pluto? Oh, yeah. So I was the most visible uh, player in the Pluto story. But I didn't... I had nothing... I mean, we had... It, Pluto had it coming, first of all. Uh, <laughs> it was... <laughs> it was in... It was already driving off the cliff. And we just found there was a point where sufficient evidence came forth so that we couldn't any longer hold it up as the ninth planet. And it was, became a participant. I think Pluto's happier. It became a participant in the newly discovered band of icy bodies in the outer solar system called the Kuiper Belt of Comets. And Pluto's surely happier there. Uh, no doubt about that. But the reason why I got it implicated is because at the American Museum of Natural History, we had just opened a brand new renovated planetarium with a whole new exhibit, and we had the planets dangling from the ceiling, and Pluto wasn't among them. And the New York Times caught wind of that. And the, the next day, there was a page one story, below the fold, but nonetheless story that said, Pluto not a planet? Only in New York. That's when the hate mail came. I have a file cabinet. Steve. Hey, well, from third graders. Listen, when I third, third graders. Well, third grade, I learned how you could tell the planets from their distance from the sun. Mary's violet eyes make John stay up nights. Period. Period. Pluto. Now there's no period. Yeah, so deal with it. <laughs> Just say it. All right. In, in, in a minute. Yeah. Why is Pluto not a planet? Oh, it's it's quite simple. So first of all, did you know that the Pluto lovers out there often don't have the full inventory of why Pluto got kicked? 
kicked out. Uh, do you know that our moon has five times the mass of Pluto? Our moon. I did not know that. See? <laughs> but so what? That just makes it a little planet. Okay, wait, wait, wait. But that's only the beginning. Uh, Pluto's orbit is tipped, significantly tipped out of the plane of orbits of the right. other planets. By the way, you know what else has tipped orbits? Comets. Okay? More than half of Pluto's volume is comprised of ice. If you brought Pluto to where Earth is now, heat from the sun would evaporate that ice and it would grow a tail. That's no kind of behavior for a planet. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your story begins when you're nine years old, and yeah. like every school kid in New York City, including me, you go to the Hayden Planetarium. But the difference is it changed your life. Why? Yeah, so I, sometimes I wonder, had I grown up on a farm somewhere, whether I wouldn't have been as starstruck as I was. Because there I am, a kid having grown up in the Bronx, right. the Bronx, you sit in the chair, the lights dim, the stars come out, and there's more stars than I'd ever seen in my life. I, I, it was a hoax, for sure. I know how many stars are in the night sky. There's six visible from the Bronx. That was the night sky. And I grew up, as did you, Shirley, if, in early New York City, not only was Don't there- Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> not only was there night uh, light pollution, but you look up, there's a tall building in the way. You have to like keep craning right. your neck. And back then, there was also air pollution, right. much more significant than today. No one in New York City has any kind of relationship with, with the night sky. It's true. When you go out into the real world, it's like, <laughs> what are all those lights? What, what, what are all those lights? So there they dim the lights, and I'm struck by it. Whereas had I seen that every night of my life, this would just be, of course, this is just the night sky. So, so this, it hit me. So I don't think I chose the universe. I think the universe chose me. All right. When you're 12, you get your first telescope. We have a picture here of your dad yeah. helping you set up that telescope. And by the age of 15, you're giving lectures on astronomy? Yeah. yeah. To my, whom? my first, I just turned 15, and I gave a, 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 a talk at the Extension School of City College of New York, uh, there was a teacher there who was a friend of my father's, and there was a, a, a comet, highly touted comet, that was coming around around Christmas time, and they wanted to find out about it. And she knew that I knew about that comet, even though I was 15, but who cares? If you know something, you know something. So I was invited to give this college lecture on comets and some other things I knew about astronomy that rounded out that information, and they paid me for it. 
it was, I felt so cheap, actually. Not cheap that they didn't pay me enough. I just felt, <laughs> I didn't feel right because this is just knowledge. I didn't sweat. I didn't toil. I'm just sharing with you knowledge that we should all have. Don't pay me for that. Boy, you do not understand television. <laughs> <do you? laughs> all right. Your, your story has a great arc because, as you mentioned, in 1996, this little nine-year-old becomes the director of the Hayden Planetarium. And then you lead a huge renovation from, and we're going to put it up, the Hayden Planetarium that I saw when I went there in the 1950s to what it is today that's been described as the Hubble Space Telescope meets Hollywood. So how different is the experience of going to the planetarium today? Uh, that's a great question that I'm not asked often enough. So uh, if you remember what it was like when you were a kid, right. you'd go into the dome, you'd sit back, and the projector would rise, would be there in the yep. middle, and it would show you the night sky. And so the big trick was, not a trick, it was a feature of the of the instrument, you could say, well, what does, the, what does the night sky look like in Australia? What does it look like on your birthday, wherever you happen to be born? And you can dial that up, and it was a mechanical optical projector made by Zeiss, and you can go there. You can move the planets. They would follow Newton's laws of motion. I mean, it was a brilliant piece of machinery. What we could do with the new facility is take any three-dimensional data set that we have, we were rapidly accumulating throughout the universe, and then project that on the dome. So no longer is it, well, what does the universe look like from around the world? It's what does the universe look like from Neptune? What does it look like from the center of the galaxy? What does it look like from another galaxy? You're no longer limited to the universe as seen by Earth's surface. You can now go there, as well as all manner of other projection features. So that's just inside the facility. The rest is an entire museum of the universe. It's a completely different experience. I, I want to turn the, the conversation a little bit because you have been deeply involved over the years in U.S. space policy. How do you sort out what the government is doing now with, for instance, Artemis I, which just returned from a, a long flight, and then and, and, and what the private industry is doing with SpaceX. I would say that should have been happening decades ago. Decades ago. The fact that it's only happening now, it's great. It's opening up an entire new economic sector, space tourism. Yeah, it's only rich people now, but so too were cell phones 30 years ago. Only rich people had them. And then eventually the price comes down, it becomes commoditized. And so uh, I, I think it's long overdue. Do you believe that there is life out there somewhere? It's not a belief statement. It's, a, it's given how quickly life started on Earth. It took about 100 million years. Ever since when Earth cooled down enough to maintain complex molecules, now start the clock, 100 million years later, we had single-celled life. And it was single-celled life for a long time before it got complex, before it turned complex. But that happened quickly. So how, whatever our challenges are in the laboratory, Earth seemed to have no issues getting there. And what are we made of? The most common ingredients in the universe. Hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen. These are four of the five most abundant elements of the universe. So, so I'm the dim student. Do you think there's life out there? I would say that if there weren't life, it would be astonishing. If there were, if given, 
how common our ingredients are and how quickly life took place here and how many planets we know are orbiting host stars. And it would be astonishing if that were the case. And what about aliens and what about UFOs? Well, to me, any life is alien. You mean aliens like with antennas and ray guns? Something more than a, a cell. Okay, something that could land here in a spaceship? Um, it could be out there. There's no evidence that would convince an authentic skeptic that we've been visited. Uh, and I can tell you this, these fuzzy monochromatic Tic Tacs that show up right. on the Navy restricted airspace in our own atmosphere. By the way, you've seen the high resolution images from a telescope we parked a million miles from Earth called the James Webb Space Telescope looking at the edge of the universe. And the best you have of visiting aliens in our own atmosphere is a fuzzy Tic Tac. You gotta do better than that if you're gonna convince an astrophysicist. You talk about your journey and you've used this phrase as the path of most resistance. A, a young black kid from the Bronx becoming an astrophysicist. How tough was that path and how important do you think it has been for people of color to see Neil deGrasse Tyson in the place that you occupy? Uh, I will invert that and say, how important is it for white people to see me where I am? That's a way more important force operating, especially if that is the community that wields resources and opportunities. And if you see a black homeless person in the street and you never saw a black a academically achieved other human being, you, you're prone to say, oh, that's just their lot in life. As people did for thousands of years, say this and think this when uh, uh, one group enslaves another group, right? So, so, but now you'll see me and you'll see the, the black homeless person and you have to like deal with that. It's like, oh my gosh, there but for the lack of opportunity goes, you know, you, you a get lot to of people. a lot of people. So I just wanna put that up front. It was a path of most resistance because uh, yes, I was also physically fit and athletic. And you see a black person who is that, particularly in the day, it's, you should be an athlete. And that just simply fulfills people's um, bin that they would put you because they've never seen your kind do anything else. So there I was, yes, being athletic, but I was in the physics club, in the astronomy club, and taking evening classes at the Hayden Planetarium. I'm doing all this, but it doesn't seem to get noticed by people who are tasked with, with helping to guide my career path. They don't know, they notice other kids who whatever, but not me. And my father, who was active with the civil rights movement and a sociologist, he had way worse life uh, encounters than I did dealing with society, and he was never bitter. He said, these people don't know better. That's how they were raised have a conversation, show them what's possible. And so I've carried that with me ever since. I've never been bitter. It just is, and I'll deal with it. Uh, it it's, it's force to have me achieve that much more to the extent that that ever becomes visible and will matter to anyone. I wanna close with one final insight from you. And that is what you call Manhattan Henge. Oh. <laughs> and that is the fact that at certain points of the year, 
that in this city of New York, that the sun lines up exactly with the east-west grid of Manhattan. And let's take a look. The sun is going to move diagonally down and to the right, and it's going to pop right into our view. Then it kisses the horizon just over New Jersey, and then it descends. Twilight and then nightfall. That is so cool. I have seen it. Didn't know, ever know it was called Manhattan Henge, but it's like Stonehenge in England, right? There are certain times of the year when the sun lines up on that particular. Yeah, so I visited Stonehenge when I was a kid, when I was 14, on an expedition to study these stone alignments and see what astronomical significance they had. And ever since then, I said, I want to bring some of that back to New York. You know, it's got to be some. So I thought, is there some place in Central Park where there is a tree that would line up with it? And I couldn't find I said, let me just go blunt and say, let me calculate what day of the year this will happen. And when I first did it, no one was in the streets. And I published the photo. And then at the planetarium, we would post these dates. Now there are tens of thousands of people cluttering the streets. Finally, we get to stop traffic for a reason other than police activity or Con Ed digging holes. So, <laughs> so, so I'm delighted. It's a cosmic shared experience. And Manhattan Henge as a word is now lifted into the Oxford English Dictionary. So I was very happy to learn that. Neil, thank you. This has been fascinating, fun, and I understood about a third of it. <laughs> <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson's TV programs, podcasts, and books have helped make the heavens as accessible to us as have the most cutting-edge telescopes. You can get fresh insights from Neil on his show, Star Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want, right here on HBO Max, to find out who's talking next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.